Ezekiel, the 39th chapter, we're on the second half of the prophecy of Ezekiel's war, referred to as Ezekiel's war. Of course, he won't be there fighting this. In verse 1, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bringing you against the mountains of Israel. Now Gog is the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. There were times that I have thought this referred to Russia, Moscow, and some other things. Much, much was written about that. As I, every time we endeavor to teach this, I look to read as much from it as I can. And I'm more convinced on the, uh, the things that I read about placing these, that these are more in the area of Turkey. We went over that last time. I did put up an article on the Facebook page this morning. If anyone had uh, taken a chance to read that, out of an announcement that the leader of Turkey made regarding unifying the Muslim nations against Israel. So if uh, you didn't see that, you want to go up there and take a look at that, feel free. That won't, that won't disappear from the church page, or the church Facebook page that will be up there for, uh, I imagine, a very long time. But here he says, You, son of man, prophesy against Gog. So again, the prophecy is against a person. The person's name is Gog, or at least his title. It's either his title or uh, the title that God gives him. It may just be something of, of that that nature. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And I will turn you around and lead you on, bringing you up from the far north and bringing you against the mountains of Israel. Now I say this when we come to certain parts in the Hebrew. I am not a Hebrew scholar. I don't enjoy the Hebrew language. So I never took the Hebrew language. I rely on other people to tell me some things about it. So I'll read about other people who understand Hebrew. I myself like Greek. And I can read somebody who has, uh, who will analyze Greek and analyze their, their, um, analyzation, <laughs> so to speak. But not so much with Hebrew. Hebrew, I'm kind of at the mercy of what other people have to say on this and I'll default to their expertise on the language. And when it says here, I will turn you around and lead you on, I am told that the literal Hebrew would read this way. I will turn you around and leave but the sixth part of you. I will turn you around and leave but the sixth part of you. So what this is basically saying is God will destroy five-sixths of the invading army. Now, Gog is going to get a, a group of people from the areas of Turkey, Iran, the northern nations of Africa, excluding, of course, Egypt, and we, we named some other ones that were missing from there, but Libya, uh, Ethiopia are, are going to be there. The Arab nations from Saudi Arabia and some others, they were not included. And uh, it, it seems like it's mostly going to be from these areas from the north and from these areas from the south. Syria does not seem to be involved, which is really perplexing. Syria seems to take every opportunity they can to come against Israel. Uh, the southern nations of the former Soviet Union will be involved in this battle. And those are all Islamic nations. And this would certainly be those that Gog would be trying to unite and bring together. So you're going to have an army from all these different nations coming against, coming against Israel. And whatever army they bring, whatever size it is, five-sixths of it stays in Israel, dead. Verse 3, Then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand and you shall fall upon the mountains of Israel you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you and I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured and you shall fall on the open field for I have spoken says the Lord God. So not only is five-sixths of the army going to fall but Gog himself is going to die here. Now later on in verse 11 he's going to say you're going to be buried there in Israel. So obviously he was left behind by the invading army. If you're only one-sixth of the number that you came in with, you obviously can't bring back all the dead that had been left if five-sixths of them are on the ground. And it seems that Gog is one of those who is there and Israel will bury him. 
but I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand. So it would seem that whatever he has, whatever power he has for war will be destroyed. And you shall fall upon the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of prey of every sort, to the beasts of the field to be devoured. And you shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord. So keep in mind this prophecy that the birds of prey and every sort of beast of the field will devour the five-sixths of the army that is left behind, that dies. This prophecy is given thousands of years before this is, this is going to occur. I believe uh, literally it's 2,600 years before this will occur. So Ezekiel has basically called for the beasts of the field and the birds of the air to get themselves ready. And then when this battle goes on, to come in and to take care of the carcasses that are there. Now later on, we're going to see that Israel goes through and they find the bones. And that would be why, because these animals pounce upon the prey. Can you imagine the sight that that would be? Whatever multitude this is, five, six of them, are on the ground and people, the, the, the people, they're going to be devoured by birds and by uh, beasts of the field. Boy, that's, I mean, as much of a sight as it's going to be to see five-sixths of an army destroyed, how much more to, that all these animals come in and, and do that? We've never seen that. In all the battles that we have seen, we've never seen animals come in and devour uh, those that are slain and are on the ground to the degree that this one will be. But he prophesied this 2,600 years ago. The animals have heard the word. God spoke it, but man prophesied it. And so the, the, it's been empowered and they're just waiting for this battle to, to go on. And when it goes on, they, they have their assignment, so to speak. He says, You shall fall on the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord. Now Israel seems to be greatly outnumbered in this battle. But it never seems to come to a place of combat. In all, and so far, the verses that we have read, we have read that five-sixths of the armies that come against Israel are destroyed. Five-sixths of the armies. One out of every six people will survive coming to this battle. We get upset when we lose ten people in a day in a battle in this country. Can you imagine losing that many in one it seems to be one day. But here's what's missing from all this. Where is the army of Israel? Is there any mention of a battle being fought? Is there any mention of Israel coming in with their arms and their battles, their, their, their battle uh, armaments? There's no, no mention of it. We have five-sixths of the invading army's uh, military destroyed, and yet Israel doesn't seem to do a thing. Now, it would be a spectacular testimony to the world to have a huge army come against Israel and Israel go up against them with their smaller army and defeat them. But how much more when no army comes out to meet them and five-sixths of them die? How is the world going to explain that? Because in this prophecy, there is no, no mention of Israel's army. There's no mention of Israel's losses. There's no mention of anything as far as Israel is concerned. All that we have so far is that the bow in the left hand will cause the arrows to fall out of the right hand. So his, his armament will disappear. It says that they shall fall on the mountains of Israel. And all your troops and all the peoples who are with you, verse 4, and I will give you to birds of prey and every sort of the beast of the field to be devoured. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, says the Lord God. Verse 6, And I will send fire on Magog, and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Now here's a... It's, this is a perplexing thing about this verse. He says, I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. This battle does not take place in Magog. Because Israel does not send out an army. 
the invading force is Gog gathering up forces from Magog and from these other nations that are mentioned. And they come down into Israel. And we were given some of the ways that they would, that they would come. So the battle is taking place in Israel or right close to it, one of their borders. But he says here, I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands that they shall know that I am the Lord. Now Magog is not in the battle. The people of Magog are in the battle. The warriors from Magog are in the battle. But the land is not involved. So on the day that they come down and they descend upon Israel, five-sixths of their military dies of those that are sent. And God sends fire upon the homeland of Magog. <laughs> Is that going to be a statement? He says, I will, I will send fire on Magog and on those who live in security in the coastlands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. So Magog and those that are in the coastlands, so that would be lands that are, of course, that are by water, most, more than likely an ocean. This does not mean Israel. This does not mean the, the coastlands of Israel or those nations that are around Israel there. This is, God is judging Magog and Gog, the leader of them. So it's coastlands of the nations that are involved in the battle. So this is going on away from the battle that fire is being sent down. So I will make my name holy. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. And I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Now the fire that is being sent is either fire from heaven or the heavens. It can go either way. It could be God's fire like Elijah called it down and it just came down from heaven. Or it could be fire that comes down from the heavens from something going on in the heavens. Whether that would be hail, no, no, sorry, not hailstones, but meteors. You know, you could consider that to be fire from, he, from the heavens. Uh, I don't know what it is. But whatever it is, once we see it, we will know. Well, that's, that's, that's what Ezekiel was talking about, fire from heaven. And it came upon the land of Magog. This is their homeland. This is not where they are. So the fire that comes from heaven is not what destroys five-sixths of the army. Unless God also sends it upon them and didn't mention it in here. But he's sending the fire down upon Magog. So it is either a fire from heaven or the heavens. There is a, it is possibly a nuclear exchange. Maybe something happens with a nuclear uh, force in one of their countries and this, this happens. Uh, we don't know. The, the thing about prophecies is it is a whole lot easier to understand them after the event has happened. God gives us just enough so that we can figure it out after it happens. Oh, that's what it, that's exactly what it was, but not enough to figure it out completely ahead of time. So he's, he's done that with many a prophecy, but still this is given 2,600 years before this is actually going to occur. And God gives all these details from all the nations that are involved, the nations that are not involved the destruction that will come upon their homeland. I put in your outline that probably occurs in another part of the world, not a part of the world where they are. Verse 8, Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. This is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and set on fire, then burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, the javelins and the spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. Now, we may say that's not the kind of uh, warfare we fight anymore, but this is the type of warfare that he was used to. Maybe he's just using what he knows to be weapons of war. Uh, maybe they are people that actually do use these. If you look at the nation of Afghanistan, they do still use a lot of these, these uh, types of uh, war. They, they use horses. They use uh, 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 things that the rest of the world thinks are a little bit archaic, but they do get the job done for what they want to do. He says in verse 8 again, Surely it is coming, and it shall be done, says the Lord God. So this is the Lord who's saying this. This is coming. He probably wants to emphasize this because God knows this is for a time in the future. It shall be done. This is the day of which I have spoken. Then those in Israel who dwell in the cities of Israel, 
will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons. This is the only time we had them going out from the cities. Before we saw that they felt secure where they were, but now they're going out to take care of what had been, had been done. And burn, and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, bows and arrows, javelin spears, and they will make fires with them for seven years. They will not take wood from the field nor cut down any from the forest because they will make fires with the weapons and they will plunder those who plunder them and pillage those who pillage them, says the Lord God. Now, generally, if you capture weapons from an enemy, you would add them to your own arsenal and use them for to, to expand your own weapons. I'm not sure why they burn them. Um, but we'll figure that out when we're watching from wherever we are. Again, this could be at the end of the church age. This could begin, begin the tribulation period. It's going to be, I'm pretty sure, it's going to be somewhere around there. There's nothing the Bible says that's exactly when it's going to occur. But so much is involved with Antichrist in this particular battle, it would seem to either be what ushers him into power or something in the beginning when he is coming to power. But again, we'll see this as it, as it plays out. So God will make himself known to Israel. Israel will know that this is God. Up to, till now, maybe uh, they don't know so much about God. There's a lot of people that have gone to Israel. A lot of people have bought land and made homes in Israel, but they don't worship God. They've come from other nations, but they, they don't worship God. We had neighbors that were Jewish, and we would ha- I would have conversations with them. Uh, they, were, they were somewhat strong Jewish people, and... Um, we would talk about the things they believe and they didn't even want a temple. And it didn't really seem like they had a whole lot of belief in, uh, in the prophecies of the scriptures. Uh, but they said, we don't want a temple. All this stuff about, about people. There's a lot of people in Israel who do not want a temple. There's a small number of people who do. But understand, it is not the majority. It is the minority. So even... At the time of this battle, there's a lot of people that have come to Israel, but they haven't come to God. They just came home. Maybe they had no other place to go. Maybe this seemed like a better opportunity. Whatever it might be, they came. And now God is saying, now you will know that I am God. I have just defended you from a huge army. And basically, they do nothing. And then we have fire coming down from the heavens or from heaven itself and causing destruction in the homelands of the people where God came from. So they're going to go through the land. They're going to be burying the people that are there. And it's very interesting some things they say about the the actual burial. Now in verse 11, let me read this one more time. It will come to pass in that day that I will give God... Did I read it verse 11? No, okay. I guess I flipped the page a little sooner. It will come to pass in that day that I will give God a burial place there in Israel the valley of those who pass by the east of the sea, and it will obstruct travelers because they, there they will bury Gog and all his multitude. Therefore they, they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Indeed, all the people of the land will be burying, and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. So there, what we're going to see here is, let me just... Let me jump ahead of you a little bit on the, the outline. There's this part here of seven months. Again, this is people who know Hebrew way better than I do. They tell me this. Either it takes seven months to complete the project or it takes seven months to start. Apparently, the Hebrew can be read either way. Once this thing is, is known, we'll, we'll find that out. It either takes seven months before they can begin the project of burying the dead or it takes them seven months to complete it. Now, from a non-Hebrew standpoint, just me looking at the prophecy and all the things that are involved, I would probably tend to the second one, that it takes them seven months to begin this. And in that seven months is when they are devoured by the birds and the beasts of the field. It would seem that something goes on here that is nuclear. The, um, I don't know if we've come to that. We will come to that verse of scripture that we'll, 
We'll show you why that is. But let me go back here. It will come to pass in that day that I will give Gog a burial place there in Israel. So Gog, he will be buried. He will die in this battle and he will be buried in Israel. Now here's an interesting problem that comes up with this. I think I put the, the scripture, we'll jump ahead on this one too, in your outline. Revelations 20 and verse 8. It reads this way, And we'll go out to deceive the nations. This is speaking of Satan. who will go out and deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. If Gog is killed and buried in Ezekiel's battle, how does Gog appear again here at the end? Now that right there is why some people try to bring Ezekiel's battle into the battle of Armageddon and make the two one because of the mention of Gog and his, him being buried. But as we took time with last time, there are nations that are not involved in this battle. Egypt is not involved. Syria is not involved. Saudi Arabia is not involved. There's a number of play, uh, major players in that region that are not involved. Stand on the sidelines and watch this thing unfold. Those nations are involved in the battle of Armageddon. So it would seem that Gog is more of a title put upon a person either by man or it is a title put upon a, a person by God because of his influence by Satan. He is a leader that Satan has picked and Satan can go and he can grab another one. And you could call him Gog. He is an evil leader inspired by Satan and under his control like no other leader is. And there we, we had a first one here, this Gog, but he died in this battle. There is going to be another Gog who is going to appear. Now in that verse in Revelation, that Gog cannot even be the Antichrist because if this Gog comes up and is buried, there's going to be another Gog who's going to show up and he's going to be the Antichrist. And uh, then we're going to... Uh, Antichrist is going to be in the lake of fire. Remember Antichrist? He gets thrown right into the lake of fire. Him and the false prophet. They're in there all by themselves. they got the whole place to themselves, all the space they want. Of course, they're not enjoying it, but the, they get to be the first entrances into the lake of fire, waiting for everybody else. So they're, they're not coming back. The Antichrist is not coming back. So it's probably just someone else that the devil has inspired. He will come about to, <clears throat> to do this. So they will have a search party that will pass through the land. And when anyone... Uh, we didn't... Uh, let me go back to verse 14. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and to bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. And at the end of seven months, they will make a search. So again, it's either at the end of seven months is when they make the search or it takes seven months for the search to go on. I, I can't tell you definitely which way it is. I told you which way I think it probably goes. But what, what the people of Israel are going to see here is they're going to see God stand up for Israel like they've never seen Him stand up before, at least not in their lifetime. They've never seen a deliverance like this take place. This is going to blow away everything they've ever thought about what God would do or has done. They've heard the stories of the Old Testament, but now they are going to get a chance to see this and it's going to leave them in awe. Wow. Nothing but God showing up could have had this happen because they don't even seem to deploy anything mil militarily. And God just shows up and destroys them however it is that He destroys them. So I put in your outline this, Jewish, the Jewish people around the world have become motivated to do two things. And these are those that are around the world. Again, he said in verse 13, Indeed, all the people of the Lamb will be buried and they will gain renown for it on the day that I am glorified, says the Lord God. So the Lord will be glorified. The people of Israel will become renowned for, for what they are doing here in this burying all these people that they were the victors in, in all this. So two things that will happen. First is, people will be motivated to return to Israel. People who have not returned up till now, Jewish people, people who know they have Jewish descent, will be motivated to return to, Egypt, to, to Israel. Second thing that we're motivated to do, 
is to build a temple. They are not that motivated right now. There are a lot of people who, though Israel, they know that Israel is the home of the Jews, but they are not motivated to do so. You could relate to this simply by, um, if you know your ancestry roots, if you knew where you came from. I know from my last name that somebody way back came from Germany. That's pretty clear. Uh, my mom tells me that uh, on my, my grandmother's side, from my dad, some people came from Ireland. So I know that I got that. My grandfather's side, I believe England was involved, and I don't know what else. Um, all that sort of stuff doesn't, doesn't uh, matter to me a whole lot. But I have absolutely zero desire to ever return to Germany. No desire. I didn't even have a desire to go visit. I just don't want to. Um, I most times I think of Germany, I think of the Second World War, and not pleasant. I have no desire to go, go there. I have, I, I have a desire to go see Ireland. It looks like it's pretty. But no desire to move there. You, know, you can get comfortable where you are. Even though this may not be the home of your ancestors, it's your home. It's my home. And we, we get comfortable there. But this is going to motivate people, Israelite people, who say, I have no reason to go back to, back to Israel. I don't want to go over there. I've got all that stuff going on. People are always trying to bomb them, sending missiles. Why do I want to go there? I'll stay here. And Whether they be in the States, whether they be in England, wherever it is that they are, they feel set up. They feel happy. They feel content. And they have no motivation to go. But they're going to see God show up for the people of Israel in the land of Israel. In a way that you cannot, they cannot deny it. Some people will deny it, but they cannot deny it. And they say, God is defending his people in our homeland. I need to get there. And they will suddenly become motivated. This battle will suddenly motivate a lot of Jewish people to leave the comfort of where they are and go into Israel. That's one of the things that this will do. Secondly, it will motivate them to build a temple. Now, in no way does this prophecy refer to that. We're going to have some things about the temple and the one to come. But God doesn't say he wants a temple. But just because God doesn't say he wants it doesn't mean that people will do it. Won't do it. They're going to, they're going to build a temple because that's how they know to worship God. God doesn't want them worshiping him through a temple anymore. He wants them worshiping, worshiping him through Jesus Christ. They are not going to do that. Israel as a nation will not serve Jesus Christ. They will serve Jehovah God, but not Jesus. Some Jewish people will serve Jesus, but it will probably be a minority. But God is still showing up for them. And what he is going to show by doing this battle is he is going to erase any doubt in the minds of the Jewish people, not the minds of everybody else, but the minds of the Jewish people, the only reason you were removed from this land before is because of your sin, your disobedience, and you're not following. Keep me, your Lord. Your idolatry. If you had stayed out of that, I would have defended you then the same way I just defended you now. And they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they would not have had to leave the land the first time nor left the land the second time if they would have obeyed God. Because God is going to show His deliverance on such an extraordinary, great level. They, they will be in awe. And people who have no motivation to go home to Israel will have a motivation to go home. And people who have no motivation right now to build a temple will suddenly become enthralled with worshiping God who just delivered their nation and will build a temple. Which verse should we leave off at? Do we get to 14? Now let's go back to 14 again. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land. And when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it till the barriers, till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. The name of the city will also be Hamanoth, and they shall cleanse the land. Now, the valley of Haman Gog, it means the multitude of Gog. In other words, a whole lot of Gog is right there. 
big multitude. We didn't count them all. We just tossed them in. But I want you to notice this very strange wording. They will set apart men regularly employed. Does that sound weird? What this is saying is that they are, these are professionals. They are professionals at what they do. So they will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party and pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. Now look at this and try and figure out why this would happen. The search party will pass through the land and when anyone sees a man's bone, he will set up a marker by it till the buriers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. Why would you pass by a bone and only set a marker on it instead of taking care of it right then? It is very possible that something nuclear happens that helps wipe out five-sixths of this army. It is possible they brought some nuclear armaments with them to destroy parts of Israel and somehow it went awry. And there could have been nuclear, it could have been biological, it could have been all kinds of things that they brought along with them. Whatever it is, we have professionals that are going out. If you are looking at a scene on, the, on um, some news clip they throw up to try and get you to watch the news, and you see a bunch of people all in the same type of like what looks like rain gear, and they got hoods, and they got breathing material, and they got gloves, what do you think? There has been some kind of a biological, some kind of a contamination, and these people are professionals who have gone in with the equipment to handle the emergency. It would seem that that's what happens here. People who are professionals at going in whatever the emergency is, whether it be biological, nuclear, some time of contamination has occurred which is maybe why it takes, I, I, I lean towards the second one, they had to wait for seven months before they could get in there and do whatever it is that they were going to do. And then when they go through, they put markers up. They don't, they don't go in there and they grab them right away. They put markers up. And then they come by after that and they just gather them all together and they throw them in this valley. Just get them out of the way. So we're going to rename the whole valley after this. I had pictures of of the valley, but I didn't bother trying to bring them over because I didn't think they were going to be able to make it up on our screen and I failed in all the other ways I tried to get them to go get up there. So again, the process involves professionals, set apart men who are regularly employed and there are special procedures. He shall set a mar up a marker by it. So when they find the bones, they have a procedure. Now they're finding bones, even though it's only been seven months, they're finding bones because the animals, the birds have gone in and they have picked these things clean. Because they're on assignment. They have an assignment from God. This is what we are to do. This is all we are to eat. We are to eat the bones or the, the flesh that's on these bones. Verse 17, And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every sort of bird and to every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come, gather together from all sides to my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. A great sacrificial meal on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. Now normally, you have a sacrifice and the priest ate the, the sacrifice, but now God's making the sacrifice and he says, birds, you come on in here, you eat it. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty, Drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams and lambs, of goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. We talked about that term, the fatlings of Bashan, and, and uh, told you that there's no way this could refer to anyone from the region of Russia, that it would be more of a term that we refer to people from the areas of Turkey and uh, even a little bit west of there. You shall eat fat till you are full and drink blood till you are drunk at my sacrificial meal, which I am sacrificing for you. So we find out that not only Gog, the leader of all these, but there's also other princes of the earth who fall in this battle. Now, most times, if you have uh, royalty and, and dignitaries in the battle, they would stay towards the back. They would not be involved in the actual fighting. It's not like the days of King David and Saul, who the king was one of the ones who would lead you out in the battle. He was one of the fighters. That's not how it is in, in our days. 
the people that, uh, the generals, they're generally way back in the safety of wherever they are. We don't have too many General Pattons anymore. We don't have any, too many General George Washingtons to go out in the front and uh, face the enemy. Most of them are, are uh, behind the scenes somewhere and dealing with things, things out there even more so than they were in the days of Patton. So somehow, whatever this is that God does to destroy them, it attacks them no matter where they are. Wherever they are, even if they think they're in a place of safety, this thing gets them, and they die. And the people that are remaining, if you had five-sixths of your army die, five out of six people died, you would be trying to get out of there as fast as you can. You wouldn't be taking a whole lot of stuff with you. And that's why Israel has so much plunder and so much to, uh, to take, because they just got out of there. Similar to some of the things that happened in the Old Testament. Verse 20. You shall be filled at my table with horses and riders, with mighty men, and all the men of war, says the Lord. Now, we already gave you this one before, but though God is buried in verse 11, he reappears in Revelations 20 and verse 8. At that point, Antichrist is in the lake of fire, and it wouldn't be him either. So, it seems like this title, God, can be put on anyone who leads an army against the people of God or against God himself, which would be so in Revelation chapter 20. Verse 21, And I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me Therefore I hid my face from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies and they all fell by the sword. So again, I didn't deliver you before because of your iniquities, not because my lack of power or my lack of ability. Could just as much have done it then as I did it now. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. And I will be jealous for my, for my holy name. After they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, when they dwelt safely in their own land and no one made them afraid. They dwelt safely and no one had made them afraid. But they bore their shame. And they bore the shame of all their unfaithfulness. And now they see that God is God. In verse 27, When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and I am hallowed in, in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who set them into captivity among the nations but also brought them back to the land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them anymore for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. Alright, let's take a look at just a little bit of this. If this battle was the battle of Armageddon, there is no point in calling Israel home at the end of the tribulation. There is a point in calling Israel home at the beginning of the tribulation. This is where I will protect you. If you will answer my call, if you will listen to my voice, and you will return to the homeland of Israel, there you will be protected. If they don't heed that call, if they don't listen to that voice, they will not be protected. God will not have the... Um, the obligation to protect them. But if they will return home, they will get that call down in their, in their spirit. We need to go home. I don't know why. We just, we need to go back to Israel. But we've never been there. It doesn't matter. I, I just know we need to go back. And people from nation, all, all over the world are going to lose Jewish people as they come into this land because of this battle, because of what they see God do in this battle. Now here's an interesting thing. But what about Syria? In this battle, Syria does not seem to be involved. And Syria hates Israel. It has for a long time. Was it uh, about seven years or so ago? Um, big, big skirmish between Israel and Syria. People thought that that was going to be uh, one of the end time battles, that uh, somebody, somebody was going to be destroyed. There's a prophecy in Isaiah 17 
I'll read the first three verses for you. The burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. That's a prophecy by Isaiah. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down and no one will make them afraid. The fortress also will cease from Ephraim, the kingdoms, the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. And they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. One of the interesting facts about Damascus, and Damascus has this even over Jerusalem. Damascus is the oldest and longest inhabited city in the world. It has been defeated in battle, but it has never been uninhabited. When Assyria took it in, I think it was 732 B.C., it still was inhabited. It suffered some destruction, but it did not become uninhabited. It did not become no people inside at all. They still had people. They still lived there, and they eventually rebuilt the city again. But what he is prophesying here, you can go through and read the rest of the scripture if you want to, Isaiah 17, that Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. Now, can you imagine taking the oldest existing city with the longest um, habitation? I mean, Damascus goes back to the book of Genesis. So does, so does Jerusalem. But Jerusalem has a number of periods where it was uninhabited. Damascus doesn't have that. There always had people in there. And we're going to take that old of a city that has survived so many things and God says, Damascus, you're going to become a heap. Just rubble. Now we look at the things that can go on in warfare today and you can take a very prosperous city and cause it to be uninhabited. You don't necessarily need a, a war. You don't need to knock down all the buildings. When we had uh, Chernobyl uh, and that uh, disaster took place, uh, I forgot the name of the city. I had it in my head a little bit ago. But the city nearby, it became deserted. Overnight, people just fled. And the city wasn't knocked down. Uh, but the amusement parks were abandoned. The houses were abandoned. The cars were abandoned. People just left because of the destruction that was there. And eventually, nature moved in and began to take over some of the things. And uh, if, if, you've, if you've looked, you've seen some pictures because visitors have been allowed to go back in there now. Uh, you can't live in there, but you can go back in there and visit for a little while. And they've taken some pictures and people have been able to, to see. Now, if you've ever, ever wondered, how is it that Chernobyl could not, be in, could not be habited for all these years? But you go over to Japan, and when we dropped the atomic bomb, we rebuilt them right away. And it's, a lot of that is just depending on the, the way the bomb was, was done. First off, those were two smaller... Uh, by today's uh, by today's assessment, they were pretty tiny bombs. The nuclear weapons we have now are so far uh, capable of so much more destruction than those things were. Those things are just little blips compared to. If you ever want to, I've seen this up on the internet somewhere. I saw one of the pictures. Uh, you can look at some of the comparisons of explosions if you ever want to do that, and I'll show you the. Uh, uh, some of the bombs throughout history, and they'll get up to the A-bomb, and it'll look like, the man, the A-bomb is just, wow. And then you'll go from there to the, the different stages of nuclear bombs and the hydrogen bomb. I remember hearing the description of one of the hydrogen bombs. They set it off out in the desert somewhere in the United States, and it started to react with the hydrogen in the air. And they actually became afraid because they didn't know if it would stop. It just kept, it got a lot bigger than it was supposed to be. And um, we've gone, uh, we're not using hydrogen bombs anymore. We're using other ones and they're even more lethal, far more destructive and a bigger explosion. So if you ever want to do that, go up and you can take a look at that uh, the size of the explosion. It'll give you an idea. But when we set off the atomic bomb over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they were, uh, oh, there's a term for this and I can't remember the term. They were not a ground explosion. It was, it was an airburst. And so they exploded in the air above the city. They didn't go down to the ground level and explode down there. If they went down to the ground level and exploded down there, then the nuclear fallout would have kept them from rebuilding for a long time. But because they exploded it above the city, it, the nuclear fallout didn't last as long. 
and they were able to come in and rebuild. So that's why those two cities were able to be rebuilt sooner because of the way that they, they blew it up. Of course, we weren't trying to, we were trying to shock and awe, so to speak. Uh, we only had two bombs. Uh, one was called Little, Little Boy and Fat Man. We only had two. And the reason that they set off both of them so close together, they wanted to give the impression that we could keep doing this. And so they did the two right in a row because they had no more, but they wanted the Japanese people to think we had lots more. Here we go. (laughs) Uh, You better surrender now. So they decided, I think they have more, and so they surrendered. And so the war was over. And we went in there and we, we rebuilt those cities. If there is a, a, some kind of a explosion that would cause a nuclear fallout in the city, then the destruction that would be there would just be left as rubble. And there would be no more rebuilding. The city would, be, would cease to be in existence because no one could live there anymore. So this is the prophecy that is made that Damascus would be, become a ruinous heap. Uh, it has not been fulfilled yet. Isaiah 17 has not come about yet. So somewhere it will. It seems because in this prophecy, Syria is, is still listed on the sidelines. So it seemed like Damascus is still there. And so maybe that, this occurs during the tribulation period. So we don't know. But it will occur because God prophesied it. So we'll have to wait and see. What happens there? Now, between the years of 1948 and 1973, Israel fought four wars with their allied neighbors. Between 1948 and 1973, there were four wars that Israel fought with the Arab neighbors. None of them lasted real long. Um, That would be an average of one war every eight years that they fought. And then since 1973... That was the Yom Kippur War. There has not been a major conflict, except, you know, missiles going back and forth here and there. There has not been a major conflict since then. So you're looking at 1973, 83, 93, 2003, 2013. You're looking at almost five decades of no major conflict. How do you go 1948, 1973, a major conflict about every eight years to none in almost five decades. Wouldn't it seem like something would have happened to, to alter this? It would seem that what may have occurred to change the minds of the Arab nations around them is that Israel is one of the few nuclear-ready nations. And not only did it become nuclear-ready, not only were they able to explode a nuclear bomb, make a nuclear bomb and explode it, they're also able to deliver it. Now, there's, there's other nations who feel like they have some, some nice bombs, not nuclear, but they feel like they have some nice bombs and they can't deliver it. The, the, that crazy guy up in North Korea, it seems like he can barely hit the ocean. But he surely cannot hit a, a target with any of his uh, missiles that he has. So no one thinks too much about him. He's just kind of throwing them up in the air and see where they land. But Israel, they know how to, they know how to fire them and they know how to hit them. The United States, when we send a missile out to do something, it hits. I, before we even had laser guided and missile guided, when you were in the, in the World Wars, World War II and a Missouri class battleship, this is the example that was told to me, one of the shells that they would send out from the Missouri-class battleship would weigh about as much as a Volkswagen. And they could hit a football field 25 miles away. That's no laser guidance. That's no smart computer. That's just ready-aim fire. That's how good they were in World War II. Since then, we've got Tomahawk missiles. We've got laser-guided missiles. We can, we can hit the front door on a building in another country. It's, it's amazing what they can do on the, uh, the accuracy of it. And Israel can do this with their nuclear weapons. And they have targeted nuclear facilities 
in some of the neighboring countries when they started to build them. Syria, I believe, started building a, nu a uh, nuclear reactor and they blew it up. And who was the other nation? Was it Iran? They also uh, built one. And so Israel went over and they blew it up. They're not afraid to blow things up. If they feel like there's a, it's a threat to them, they will take it out. So it would seem that these nations would feel like if we do something against Israel, they may come after us with some of these nuclear or other type of uh, missiles. Um, Israel is not the United States. They're not afraid to use the power that they have. They will use it to preserve themselves. If they're the, They don't want to be the aggressor, but if the nation comes against them, they will use what they have against them. So it may be Israel's nuclear arsenal or perhaps just their increasing capacity to deliver accurately any missile and um, uh, whatever type of package they want to put on it. Now, if all the nations see the glory of God, you wonder why don't they all repent? Because what is going to happen in this battle is spectacular. They have never seen five-sixths of an army destroyed in such a short period of time. They've never seen a battle not take place and one side lose so astoundingly. This is going to be new. It's going to be covered in the news. People are going to be seeing this all over. They're, they will come up with an explanation. Somehow they will have an explanation as to why this happened that it wasn't God. And people will take that. But Israel will not. Israel will not accept anything except this was God, this was the hand of God, and we need to get to our homeland. God is calling us to come, and they will come. The rest of the nations, it's not going to cause them to repent. These nations that came and lost five-sixths of their army, they do not repent. They don't turn from coming against God. They start making plans for how they can do this again. Amazing. Now, if the house of Israel recognizes God, why do they need a temple? Because they only know one way to worship God. They have not accepted the New Testament. They have not accepted Jesus. And let me just go on back here to read over for you. Verse 29 again. And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. Something very different about the wording of this from the wording over in the, in the book of Acts, when God says, I will pour out my spirit, well, actually, Joel uh, prophesies it, and it's quoted in the book of Acts, I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel? No. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Because during the church age, the spirit of God is poured out on all flesh. But during the tribulation period, God begins to deal with Israel as a nation again. And so the wording here is changed. This is why this is probably either at the end of the tribulation, I'm sorry, at the end of the, the church age or the beginning of the tribulation because God is switching over. And He's not dealing with the world through the church. He's dealing with the world through the Jewish nation. And that's why He says, And I will not hide my face from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my Spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. This will be quite a spectacular battle. It will be the same testimony to the world as it is to Israel, but Israel will hear one thing and the world will hear something else. Both will think they are right. It's much like when we, we have news events. We have events that go on and the news picks it up and they try to get all the emotions of people stirred up. You'll have two groups one group will see the event this way. The other group will see the event this way. They're all looking at the same event. One side is wrong. But no, neither side will ever admit that they're wrong. It's going to be the same way when this battle occurs. This battle is going to cause people to take sides, so to speak. The world will say that was not God. And Israel will become completely convinced that was God. And I need to get home to Israel. They will become suddenly motivated to leave the place they have called home all their lives to make Israel 
a place that is not their home, a place where they have no ties, a place where they have no business, and they will come home. Because God showed up and did something in this battle that gave them a testimony that says God will protect us if we are there. This battle is not Armageddon. I am thoroughly convinced, and I know there are people out there who are thoroughly convinced the other way. Obviously, one of us is wrong. I don't think it's me, or I would have changed my mind. But this battle is missing too many players, and this battle calls the Israel home, which Armageddon, we never have any indication that it's to call Israel home. Armageddon ushers in to Jesus Christ coming upon the earth and bringing in his next kingdom. And this battle doesn't do that. This will be a spectacular battle. We should be watching in the news as these nations begin to form and make allegiances and leaders begin to come up. But you're not ignorant of these things when you see this stuff going about, coming about and nations rising up against Israel. Don't be nervous. God's not nervous. God's not concerned. He knows exactly where this is going. He knows exactly what he's doing. The world would deny this testimony that God has to either begin the tribulation period or to end the church age. They have a spectacular opportunity to say, God, he is God. But they will deny it. And they will walk away. But this message is mostly meant for the children of Israel. God is saying the tribulation is upon you. And what is some great persecution is coming down. Great opposition is coming. You need to be in the land of Israel. Because that's where I'm protecting you. And many will listen. And they will go home. What a thing it is to be, to watch. This prophecy that was made 2,600 years ago. Even now we're seeing some of these nations coming together and forming alliances. It's going to be something spectacular. I don't know exactly how all five-sixths of these armies die. But God knows. There will be some of them turning on each other. Some of that was described before. There will be some natural things that will go on, earthquakes and things. But whatever it is, they will know it was not because of the might and the strength of Israel, but because of the might and strength of the God that protects Israel. And they will either deny or accept that. Same way we have it today. We can either accept or deny the work of God that we see around us. It's up to us which way we choose. Well, Father, we thank you for your testimony, for your prophecies. The greatness of our God will be on display for the world to see. And they will deny him. The same way they deny your power and all the things that are going on around us. But Father, we are your children. And we recognize the power of God when we see it. You are the cause that we want to be sold out for. There's a lot of other causes that try and distract, that try and pull our attention, try and pull our passions and our emotions. But the thing that we need to be mostly focused on are these things that are coming. Events like this will be going on and if the world doesn't know that you gave a word to Ezekiel, that you gave a word to Isaiah, that you gave a word to Daniel, that you gave a word to John, and you spoke of these things that are to come. If we do not go out and proclaim your words, and these people are ignorant when these events occur, they won't know to turn to you. Father, I pray that we are not so passionate 
about the things that have stirred our emotions that we forget to be passionate about the things that stir yours. Your message is the main one that we need to proclaim, the main one we need to stand on. I thank you for the help that you give us. That first off, we can understand the words of the prophecies of the times of the end. And that secondly, we'll know what it is that we should share with them. Thank you for the help that you give us on that. In the name of Jesus, we pray.